Facilitating the Process of Sexual Self-Discovery, Session 1, Day 2, presented by Mitchell Tepper at our 2019 SCI Conference, Connections, Sexuality, and Relationships After Spinal Cord Injury. Let's listen in. I will take a moment now to introduce Dr. Mitchell Tepper, who will be our first speaker. He brings a unique combination of personal experience living with SCI, as well as professional expertise in research and education related to sexuality and disability. He is an American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors and Therapists, Certified Sexuality Educator, Certified Sexuality Counselor, an Educator Supervisor, a Sex Coach, Writer, Researcher, Public Speaker, and the Self-Proclaimed Prophet of Pleasure. He is an internationally recognized expert in the field of disability and sexuality and has advocated for many years for more comprehensive sexuality education and rehabilitation, and we're glad to have him with us today. With that, please welcome Dr. Tepper. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for coming out on such a beautiful Saturday morning. So who here thinks that the provision of sexual health care is important? Raise your hand if you do. I don't know why else you would be here this morning. Uh, so who routinely talks to your patients about sexuality? Okay, we have one hand. Okay, here, um, a little prize for you. I'm serious. This is my book called Regain That Feeling, uh, Secrets to Sexual Self-Discovery. So. Now you will continue to read and you will have more information to share. So who's familiar with, are you all from Kessler? You're different places, okay. Who's familiar with your facilities policies or guidelines on sexual health care? No one, huh? And even in large groups, I get no hands. And who has had a required course on human sexuality as part of your professional education. One, two, three. Maybe four? Like I had it integrated into several courses, but I didn't have one specific. Oh, that's, that's good. But you, they, did they cover like human sexual response cycle? Mm -hmm. All right, great. You're doing better than like a lot of the medical students I teach. You know, for years I was teaching at Morehouse School of Medicine and I'd have, you know, second, third, fourth year medical, how many people had received a, a whole class? And out of 50 people, there'd just be like a few hands up. So there's a big gap, right? You're all here, You're, you think it's important, uh, but no one's doing it right now. We had how many people yesterday? I mean, 100 people registered. I don't know how many people were, you know, patients versus partners, but I asked who received any sexual health care, and I only saw one hand go up. So there, there's this big gap. People are interested in the topic, and the room was full, right? You know it's important, but we're not talking about it. And this is what the literature says, right? A lot of people believe that someone else on the team is doing the job, or I don't have the knowledge uh, of the subject matter. I was never trained in this area. How could I expect to help people along their way uh, with sexual health care. Um, and with that, how do I take a sexual history? And what questions do I ask? And some people fare, if they ask something, they're going to open the floodgates, right? And how am I going to contain this? You know, I'm not going to do, you know, what to do when people ask this question. But 
you know, we, when we take a history on other things, we don't always expect to know all the answers. And I'll talk about working in a team approach. So lack of time, you know, I broke my neck in a diving accident in 1982 and I got seven months in rehabilitation, right? I was in New York at uh, Rusk Institute of Rehab Medicine. I wouldn't get seven weeks now, right? I'd, I'd be out the door. And so, you know, is there time to really do this with everything else that we're, we have to do? And, and I will show you ways that, that you can incorporate this into whatever you're doing. Um, we have a small group here this morning. What disciplines are represented? How many people are here? Are, Nurses, okay, psychologist, social worker, rehab counselor, physical therapist, all right, occupational therapist, okay, um, physiatrist, okay, we have almost a whole team represented at any, any um, speech pathologist. Anybody I missed at a discipline? Research. Research, okay. <laughs> All right, so um, you'll, you'll each have a role that you could play you know, when you're interacting with your, your patients. Uh, and then there's the general list, either discomfort with sexuality or with the concept of sexuality and disability together, um, not knowing what uh, is the potential of your, of your patients. And then value conflicts. Now, I, I teach and train and do programs all over the country. Uh, and uh, I was using a film that some of us were talking about yesterday called Sexuality Reborn. And it's explicit. And some people really took offense that there were unmarried people in there demonstrating sexual activity. You know, So some people you know, won't want to provide services to someone who's young and single or somebody, you know, they may have difficulty because somebody is a different orientation than they are and, uh, uh, or, or represent their gender in a different way. And so when we're uncomfortable with these things, it's going to be very hard to have a conversation around sexuality. And often people just underestimate the prevalence of sexual concerns and sexual dysfunction people have. So I understand why People don't do this, but it's really increasingly recognized as important. I was talking with Dr. Kirschblum today and about CARF accreditation, and he says CARF is now not just looking that you have a sheet in your book, but they're actually going to the medical record and seeing if you spoke to your patients about sexuality. And this is not just about reproductive function, right? So we're going to be talking about sexuality you know, from multiple perspectives. And so, but why uh, you should be talking about this? Because sexuality um, is at really the core of our identity, right? We're born, and people say it's a boy, it's a girl, and that we really orientate people into the world and <coughs> teach people about sexuality since, since birth. And then trauma, whether it's explicitly a, a, a physical, trauma like a spinal cord injury or history of sexual trauma or mental trauma, um, it really cuts to our core, right? And so it really shakes us at the core of our identity and we're wondering about who we are 
as, as people, as men and women in the world, and, and what's our value. So each one of you is in a position to affect someone's sexual esteem. So this concept of sexual esteem is different than self-esteem. Have you heard of it as a psychologist? The term sexual esteem, honestly, no. Right. So there is a, a multidimensional sexuality scale that looks at sexual esteem. And it's defined as positive regard for and confidence in your ability to experience your sexuality in a satisfying and joyful way. So I'll mention that a couple more times. This concept of sexual self-esteem is very important. Uh, I'll, I'll talk more about my research uh, and you'll see. It's one of the things that differentiates people in uh, the research I did of those who learned to re-experience pleasure and orgasm again and those who didn't, okay? So, and it's different than self-esteem because self-esteem uh, is measured. It's got 10, 11 questions on different, like a Rosenberg scale. They don't ask about sexuality. So, you know, people would say, if you have high self-esteem, everything else will fall in place. Well, that's not true. People get on in their lives and they get back to work and they get back to their roles as mother and father and they still have this burden of feeling like I'm half a man, I'm half a woman. All right, so sexual esteem, sexual esteem is a separate construct and one that needs attention. Um, and, and a more simple way I have of putting that, well, especially when I'm working with people, is, is this thing called, I, I lack, but I am lovable and capable, right? Everyone wants to feel like they're a lovable, lovable person and capable of being uh, a sexual partner. So first and foremost, I want to impress upon you that you're facilitating a process of sexual self-discovery, right? It's not something that just happens in a moment, you know? And from the start, your patients are wondering about their sexual future. They fear that their sex life is over. They question whether they'll ever be able to have children. That was my first question, even though I was 20 years old, I wasn't married. Instinctively, I was like, am I ever going to be, have children again? And, you know, I was told, well, no chance there are 10%, you know, based on whatever the literature was in, in 82. I have a 22-year-old now, so that, that wasn't true. Um, but whether they will ever be able to find a partner if they're single, whether their partner is going to want to be with them or stay with them if they're married, all these concerns and anxieties come up. Will I ever enjoy sex again? Uh, they, this is all running through their head, but the majority of time, people will not ask you directly any of these personal questions. And uh, I've been involved in laboratory research around orgasm and my dissertation research on orgasm. But before that, when I was working on my master's, I did a national study of sexuality, education, and counseling and rehab programs, and interviewed the first 500 people with spinal cord injuries in the National Spinal Cord Injury Association, and only half of those people said they got anything, and the other, the half that did said, only half of them said it met their needs. So they, one of the questions I asked is, is you know, who initiated, and, and only 8% of uh, the, the health professionals initiated the conversations, and they wanted them to. So people want to talk about it. They do want to talk about it to somebody who is open to listening and who's sensitive. 
So when people start, you know, after injury and they have all these questions, and then when they have their first sexual experience, uh, they say, it's not the same. It's not normal, right? It was frustrating. It felt weird. It's irritating. It's awkward. You know, I couldn't feel it at all. I felt it, but I didn't get aroused, or I felt it, but I didn't ejaculate, or I didn't have an orgasm. And sometimes this first experience is with masturbation, right, often. Uh, sometimes it's with a partner, and sometimes those experiences with a partner are not that good. Uh, either the partner, you know, avoided having sex with me, or cheated on me in one situation, you know, my partner abandoned me, you know, or my partner said, you don't feel the same. Um, so there's, there's, if someone has a bad first negative, negative bad first experience, they're left feeling like sex is pointless. Why bother, right? These fears they had about their future, their sexuality is kind of reified in their lived experience, right? And without your help, people get stuck. They get stuck there and either they don't experiment or they, they, they give up on that part of their lives. I've met people, uh, I'm doing a documentary now called Love After War, it's about injured veterans. And um, the guy with the spinal cord injury, he had a short relationship at the end of rehab and he got dumped because of his chair. And he had another short relationship and he got dumped because of his chair. And he gave up on, on, on sexuality, a young man, for 10 years. And then he was in a program, an outdoor program out in Colorado. And, he developed a relationship with a recreational therapist and she said it took her five times to hint that she was falling in love with him before he got the message and now he's married you know with a second kid on the way a guy that was burned a different population 85 percent burned this took this guy many 15 years before he got the nerve up to ask somebody out 15 years and um and, and he ended up marrying that woman adopting their child and having another one. So this, this is uh, something that, that process could take a long time and it could happen very quickly. So, did it move to the next slide? No, sorry. So, in this process of sexual self-discovery, right? So people could get stuck and it's pointless. Why bother? You know, not every negative experience leads to giving up right away. But I asked everybody in, in my research, and, and I should say I, because I gave more details yesterday, but I recruited 47 people with spinal cord injuries. And then I looked at those who had orgasm, those who didn't have orgasm as a differentiation so I could do both quantitative and qualitative research, right? And so I looked at those groups and I looked at what the difference was. And I asked everybody, you know, tell me about your sexuality before injury and where did you learn about sex and tell me about it afterwards and tell me about a peak sexual experience. Okay, so peak sexual experience happened in the context of a relationship where there was trust and safety, right? So when they met someone special and they felt like they trusted this person, which gave them a sense of safety, uh, they were willing to go out on a limb and take this risk again, 
right, of being sexual, right? Because when you're being, try, attempting to be sexual and you quote unquote fail, or I can't do it anymore, right? It doesn't feel good, so people don't want to continue on that path. And um, they find out in this experience with a person that they trust and feel safe with, that they, you know, have a sense of connectedness. That's the word they used. And this research was done a long time ago before everyone was talking about connection and connectedness. So it was their words. So I felt connected. And sexuality became more of a shared experience, right? They had pleasure in pleasing another person. Sexuality was more an expression of love than just getting off. And um, this led to their own pleasure and their own pathway to exploring pleasure and orgasm again. So, you know, that's really the briefest summary of my research on what's called lived experiences that impede or facilitate sexual pleasure and orgasm in people with spinal cord injuries. And, and there are variations in this process, of course. In the research, I did laboratory research at Rutgers and we were looking at um, sexual response and orgasm in women with spinal cord injuries. And we had three out of 15 women in the laboratory study with complete injuries uh, experience orgasm measured in various ways, um, quantitatively with instruments, and looking at heart rate and blood pressure and pain attenuation, all, all these different things were going on. And so one of the women in our study, she came to us and she was three years post, two, two years post injury, and um, had not even experimented like with masturbation because she you know, had a partner, she came home after rehab, was on the couch, he said he was going out for something, he never came back. So she was devastated and she didn't wanna face another loss. And when she saw the call for research, she thought this was a safe place she could come and experiment. And she's one of the you know, three women in our lab that had orgasms and multiple orgasms. So for her, that was a safe place. And other people, the safe and trusted person was another person with a disability, you know, in like in the hospital, or maybe it was with a, a health professional who they were comfortable with because the health professional already was comfortable with everything going on. So they didn't feel like they had to, you know, go through sharing everything again. But this process of sexual self-discovery after injury happens the same way people learn about sexuality before injury, and that's haphazardly, right? So people learn about sex primarily from having sex, magazines, uh, friends, nowadays the internet and porn, right? And so these uh, images they have, you know, without any formal education in sexuality from schools or religious institutions or even healthcare before, people are left with a, a narrowly defined notion of sexuality that's focused really just on genitals and performance, right? And so after injury, you know, they're going through this process again. We're relearning about our sexuality again, right? Haphazardly because no one is talking to us about it. But now we have a changed body, right? Changed function, changed roles, changed relationships, changed interpersonal connection. So now it's even more difficult. And all we know is what's normal. What's normal in the culture? What's normal before? What I felt before? And I can't live up to that, right? So when we don't give people 
uh, more information, they're left once again, it's pointless, why bother? And this process is a long and could be a painful one, right? So orgasm group that I looked at, they averaged 17.1 years post-injury, and the no orgasm group 10.3, right? So we know that time since injury seems to make a difference, right? But we can't say, like I said, just give it time. Um, and not to frighten, uh, when I tell newly injured people with this, I, you know, I don't want to frighten them and think it's going to be 20 years before they have pleasure and orgasm again. Uh, but the, these are folks that got really no support uh, beforehand. And, and people do figure it out. Um, so, but in the quantitative analysis, I asked about level and completeness of injury. So when I'm specifically talking about pleasure and orgasm here, orgasm as a marker, I'm not talking about sexual function, but for orgasm, there's no correlation between level of injury or completeness of injury, all right? There is for erectile function, ejaculation, lubrication, clitoral engorgement, all that, but not, not for the orgasmic response. And there's no significant difference in levels of general sexual knowledge, like before their injuries or their sexual attitudes. So you don't assume that this person is you know, very religious and they, they're gonna be conservative and this person is more liberal and you know, no, that's not what makes a difference. So the difference is with time and this concept of sexual self-esteem, right? Feeling positive regard and their ability to experience their sexuality in an enjoyable and satisfying way. And without any qualitative research, we're left thinking, just give it time, you know, and people will develop this thing. But with the, the quantitative re research, we see that people need to be supported. They need to feel that they could trust their partner and they're safe. And they need information from you guys on, on what to expect so that, you know, when, mas when masturbating for the first time, they know that they might not feel the same. They might know, you know, that you'll tell them that you want to explore other areas of your body, you know. Um, so how can you help? And by doing your part in providing comprehensive sexual health care. I think I coined that term, the PVA who sponsored this, sponsored a, a curriculum I developed in 1994 called Providing Comprehensive Sexual Health Care and Spinal Cord Injury Rehabilitation, Continuing Education and Training for Health Professionals. Um, and so providing comprehensive sexual health care follows the comprehensive rehab model. And do they all have their books from uh, the, the clinical practice guidelines on their table? So uh, some of the stuff I'm going to tell you now is in the clinical practice guidelines. And a group of us spent three years developing those, right? So we're going to just scream through a few things, but all the content is there. And so comprehensive rehab and comprehensive sexual health care follows this biopsychosocial model, and I add interpersonal and spiritual perspectives, all right? And we use an interdisciplinary team approach. So each one of you has a role. So, you know, when we're talking about sexual positioning, right? People with both occupational therapists and physical therapists get involved in this, correct? It's depending on, on, on where you are. And, um, uh, and it's incorporated into the overall healthcare. So like you had it in school where they touched on different aspects of sexuality, right? 
So OT and PT is going to cover one aspect. Nursing is going to cover another aspect. The physiatrist is going to cover uh, another aspect. The psychologist is going to cover another aspect. Okay, so we all have a role we can play. And when we're doing our, our histories, we'll ask questions related to what your expertise is and how it intersects with sexual health. Um, and patients have services readily available to access as needed. And if we have time later on, we might talk about readiness, but people's readiness varies. Some people are just too overwhelmed in the beginning and they need it later on, but everyone needs to be invited. Everyone needs to know that sexuality is something that will be addressed, whether now or later, when the question comes up. And so when, as an inpatient, people need to know this is part of their, their rehab, and as an outpatient, when you're checking in with them, you need to ask the questions. So a biopsychosocial model, this is one visualization of it. So in biology, you know, we want to think about people's general physical health. So if they come to you with a spinal cord injury, but they already have diabetes or a heart condition, right? You want to Think about what their physical health is, what their level and completeness of injury is, you know, as far as other functions, not orgasm, their endocrine function, what kind of hormonal changes there might be. Psychology, there's performance anxiety, people worried about, am I gonna lose control of my bowel or bladder? Uh, you, know, what are, you know, what do I look like now? And I'm atrophied. Uh, uh, it's that impaired self-image and also the Sexual esteem, I talked about a lot of people have coke, coke whatever, they have depression also. Um, and social culturally, you know, you have to consider culture. People have different upbringings, so you want to kind of be sensitive to them, and they have different norms and different expectations. And interpersonally, you know, what is the quality or the, the status of any current relationships, past relationships, um, whatever, life stressors, finances. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on and it shouldn't keep you from asking the questions. And you know, in the next sec section that we talk about, we'll have more time to get into how to ask those questions. And I think we might just do this one more slide. I, um, as far as the World Health Organization, so their working definition of sexual health which has been changing and evolving for 30 years. So it's just called a, a working definition. Uh, I take this part out because they talk about this integration of, of uh, somatic, emotional, intellectual, and social aspects of sexual being in ways that are positively enriching and then enhances personality, communication, and love, all right? Fundamental to this concept is the right to sexual information and as health professionals, we should be providing that and the right to pleasure. And the purpose is not merely, you know, the care related to STDs. So out of the rehab context, usually when people get sexual health care, it's STD screenings or pregnancy prevention, right? Uh, and so it's not just function, but it's really enhancement of life and personal relationships. And that's what we talked about in the beginning uh, is that this is very important. My work with veterans, you know, in 2006, when I was at Morehouse School of Medicine, we started getting involved 
uh, because we saw an end because the news said failed intimate relationships are the leading cause of suicide. And year after year, when I look at the suicide reports in the military, relationships are the significant contributor by far to suicides than any other issues. Then it's like legal issues in the army and financial issues, right? But relationships are, are really there. So this is a really important topic. And like I said, I want to impress upon you the importance of facilitating this process, helping getting it started. You don't have to be a sex therapist. You know, you don't have to be an expert. You have to invite people to talk. And, and once again, we'll go more into that in the next session. For more information about Kessler Foundation and its researchers, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That is K-E-S-S-L-E-R. F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N dot org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.